1: And so part of why the world's so messed up is because the more that people and societies care about money, the less they're going to care about those intrinsic values. And that's why we have an economic system which leads to such inequality, which leads to such ecological degradation and which is so, you know, soul sapping.
0: Why are we wired to be drawn to new things constantly and novelty and also feel a sense of security, at least in the short term, from the accumulation of more stuff? Why should the psychology of materialism actually make us hopeful about our abilities to work towards a less materialistic and more sustainable future? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To receive weekly highlights from the podcast that can hopefully provide you with another dose of inspiration, you can subscribe for free at greendreamer.com. With that, to thank you for being here, you'll also automatically be entered to win our monthly giveaways. And for now, to our episode, let's dive in. Our guest today is a psychology professor at Knox College in Illinois, who's written over 100 scientific articles and chapters on materialism, values, ecological sustainability, and quality of life, among other topics. If you've seen the documentary on the social and environmental impact of fashion called The True Cost, you would have seen him actually sharing his expertise within the film as well. On top of this, he's also authored five books, including his most recent one, which is a cartoon book called Hypercapitalism that you'll hear him talk a little bit about in our conversation as well. Green Dreamers, starting with what inspired his passion for the environment, here's Dr. Tim Kasser.
1: I think the first thing that really kicked it off for me was when I was in graduate school. I had a dog, and I lived in Rochester, New York, which is a city that's known for its actually excellent city park system. And before that time, you know, I was in my early 20s, I really wasn't. I'll be honest, I didn't pay much attention to nature one way or another, but having a dog and being surrounded by all these great parks, um, I went to the parks a lot, and there was one particular park that was kind of an abandoned park. I probably went there... 300 times, I would imagine, over the course of a while with me and the dog, and I think only three times ever saw another human being in this park. And the city wasn't really taking care of it anymore, but it had a lot of really wonderful features to it. It had a lot of junk in it too, but it had a lot of wonderful features to it. And I would say it's probably fair to say that it's the first place I ever kind of fell in love with as a place. And my friends always called it Tim's Park (laughs) because I would spend so much time there and I was, I cleaned it up. You know, I did a lot of things to help clean up the park and such. And so that's when I think I first got an awareness of of nature as a beautiful place and nature also as a ruined place mm-hmm. you know because there was much about the park tryon park it was called that was not pretty because of what people had done to it and so i think that's really for me when when i started moving in this direction to some extent
0: mm-hmm. what about that park drew you to it is it partly seeing the beauty and also the destruction
1: I think it was, especially at that point of my life, I was a pretty uh, mired and existential sorts of things. And so the fact that it was simultaneously beautiful and had all this junk in it. I think, appealed to sort of my psychological state at the moment. But I think it was also, you know, one of the things about this park that was interesting to me, you know, was that it was a, it was sort of at the bottom of Irondequoit Bay. And so it had a lot of different features. It sort of had hills. It had woods. It had this bay aspect. It had a little creek that ran through it. It had open woods. It had mm-hmm. this wonderful meadow with flowers in it. And so it was a for, I I can't imagine it was more than a couple hundred acres, but it packed a relatively large amount of diversity into that couple hundred acres that I could hit all of it on one walk.
0: For sure. So it's kind of like getting to see a lot of parts of our earth in just a tiny space, (laughs) but then also witnessing humans impact on nature already.
1: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And really seeing that, generally speaking, humans impact on nature um, is is not always very positive, Um, but it can be positive. It can be positive. But um, oftentimes it's not.
0: Mm -hmm. So then what led you to focus on materialism, life quality and sustainability in your research?
1: So at the same time, when I was a graduate student there at the University of Rochester, I was interested in people's values and goals. I was really interested in how it is that people try to construct their own lives. Um, And of course, values are what we think is important and our goals are our aims for what we're trying to make happen that's different than where we're at right now. And so that was my my main focus of study. And uh, so I was studying lots of different values and goals that people might focus on, um, but of course living in, this was in the early 1990s, late eight, late ni- late 1980s, and so consumerism had certainly been around for a while, but it was definitely hitting a kind of peak at that moment. And so um, I got particularly interested in uh, what happens when people focus on materialistic values and goals, and sort of stumbled into this finding that the more that people focused on materialistic goals... For money and status and image and possessions um, relative to other kinds of goals, the less happy they were. Um, And so really did that kind of research for eight years or so, and then continued doing that work, but also started to uh, expand into sustainability issues around 2000 or so. Um, It was really a colleague of mine, Kirk Brown, who uh, suggested that we take a look at how materialistic value were related to um, ecological outcomes, too. And uh, then I've continued along on those lines uh, ever since, pretty much.
0: So what got you interested in how materialistic values affect people's well-being in general? Was it like some personal observations you had on people in the world or...
1: Well, I think part of it was personal observations, looking around at people who I knew um, and have known. I think it also was heavily influenced by uh, I mentioned existentialism before but you know existential philosophy and existential psychology and humanistic psychology had long levied critiques against materialism and consumerism and focusing your world around you know other people's opinions about whether you're beautiful or own the right thing but none of that had ever really been empirically tested you know Mm. it had been written about but nobody had ever really scientifically quantitatively looked at it with statistics and all that kind of stuff and of course lots of you know philosophers and religious people have talked about these kinds of critiques you know you can go back to Lao Tzu or Confucius or Jesus or Muhammad or the Buddha they're all pretty much saying a similar kind of refrain here you know that if you focus your life around possessions or around manna you know life's not going to be so good so I think it was that that really was driving me. And I was fortunate to be in a great place and have a wonderful mentor who saw things philosophically and psychologically similar to me and was really able to support me in that those early days when I was sort of still a bumbling uh, graduate student.
0: So how would you define materialism, materialistic values as they have to do with us today?
1: So I'll tell you a little bit about how we measure it. There's other ways to measure it. Um, but the, what we do primarily in our studies is we give people a long list of different goals that they might have, or we call them aspirations. And so there are things like having close relationships with your family or understanding your spiritual place in the world or, um, you know, having uh, – growing as a person, feeling safe, etc., And then some of the values and goals are also things like uh, being financially successful, um, having an image other people approve of, um, being popular, etc. So we give people this long list of goals and then we ask them to rate for each of the goals how important that goal is to them. So it's not at all or a little important or very important or extremely important or whatever it is. And then what we do is we're able to see relative to other goals that people might care about, how important are goals for money, for possessions, for image, and for status? So the analogy that I often use is if you think of your whole value system as a, as like a pie, and each different type of value is like a slice of the pie. So you have a spirituality slice, and a family slice, and a hedonism slice, but you also have a materialism slice. And so what we're able to do in this is to measure kind of how big of a slice of your whole value pie concerns for money, image, and status are. And so for me, a materialistic or what materialism is, is putting a relatively high priority on those goals for money, possessions, image, and status relative to other things that one might care about.
0: Mm. So what influences how materialistic someone is? Is it kind of innate and we're born with it, or is it kind of taught to us from our upbringing?
1: Well, first off, there's only one study to my knowledge which has ever looked at genetic influences on materialism and to be honest, surprisingly to me, it found basically none, okay? Mm -hmm. I was expecting, well, maybe you get 15 (laughs) or 20% of it, but there was was basically no effect of genetics on materialism. This was from a twin study. Mm -hmm. What our research has suggested is there's two primary pathways by which people end up prioritizing materialistic values. So the first one's pretty obvious, and you already mentioned it, which is what we call modeling, social modeling. So the more that people see messages in their environment say that it's important to be materialistic and to care about money and status and such um, the more materialistic people tend to be and this has been shown in lots of different studies you know so if your parents are more materialistic you are If your friends are more materialistic you are if you watch a lot of television um, you're more materialistic because of course there's lots of materialistic messages on Mm -hmm. uh, television living in nations that are more neoliberal and focused on economic growth is associated with being more materialistic because you get sort of these broader political and economic messages that say that money's important too. So that's the first pathway and it's well validated in the research. The second pathway is a little more subtle and and maybe surprising and it has to do with what we call threat or insecurity. So what we know from a variety of studies is that when people feel threatened either sort of in their lives in general or in a particular moment like in a lab, they orient towards materialistic values. Materialistic values become more important towards them. So, or for them, excuse me. So for example you know, in kinds of general Life issues. We know that people who grow up uh, with more kind of cold, controlling parents are more materialistic. Uh, People whose parents divorced when they were young are more materialistic because that's kind of a threat. Um, Growing up in poverty is associated with being more materialistic. But we also know that like if we bring people into the lab and we randomly assign them to either experience a threat or some non-threat, the subjects who experience the threat will be um, become more materialistic, at least momentarily. Mm-hmm. So in one of the studies we did, we asked people to either think about their own death or to think about a neutral topic like listening to music. And then we asked them afterwards how important different values and goals were. And we found that, sure enough, the people who'd um, been randomly assigned to think about their own death became more materialistic than the people in the control group. Um, but it's been shown with other kinds of threats as well.
0: Is it this sense of insecurity or fear of feeling empty that drives people to want possessions to feel more secure?
1: I think that's a big part of it. I do think that, you know, there. I think there's lots of different kinds of threats that people can feel. So people can feel threats about being empty. They can feel relationship threats, so they could feel lonely. They could feel competence threats, like their self-esteem is um, not as high as they wished it to be, et cetera. And all of those kind of feel bad, right? People don't like to feel those kinds of insecurities about themselves or about their relationships or about their life on earth. Right. (laughs) And so um, one of the things that people do is they try to compensate for that in some way. And um, society, of course, tells us that one of the ways that we can manage our threats and feel safe and secure is to have this possession and that possession and a lot of money, et cetera. We see this as kind of a coping mechanism that does work in the moment to decrease the threat, but in the long run actually doesn't do much good. So it's sort of like, you know, sometimes when people are feeling down, they'll cut themselves or they'll get drunk or they'll have a one night stand, you know, now at the moment that kind of distracts them from their insecurity. And so it it is effective in the moment of distracting them from their threat, but it won't really solve the underlying problem that they have. And so it keeps them locked in a pretty vicious cycle that, that, you know, leads them to still feel threatened, leads them towards lower well-being, et cetera.
0: I feel like today, many of our social and environmental issues stem from mindless materialism. And there's two parts to this. I want to talk about the first part is just like humans innately, maybe feeling like insecure and wanting to compensate and, buy things. And the yeah. second part to it is I feel like we're also in a world that encourages mindless consumption as a way to accelerate business growth for some businesses and economic growth on a bigger scale. So to that first point, why are we constantly drawn to novelty? And why are constantly want new things? Because I feel like I'm personally, I'm very mindful of what I purchase, but I still get urges to like, want the latest and the newest things. So I don't know, I would love to learn more about where this comes
1: from. <laughs> Sure. Well, you know, I don't have any direct evidence for what I'm about to say on this innate end of things, but my sense of things is that as primates, which we are, almost all primates that live in groups are very status conscious, okay? So if you take a look at how great apes, chimps, et cetera, relate to each other. There's a lot of status hierarchy jockeying going on. And, of course, I think as as primates ourselves, as, as humans, um, that is part and parcel of how we think about ourselves vis-a-vis others. Part of what's going on, I think, in terms of concern for items and concern for possessions and for money is it's a signifier of status. And it actually is something which helps provide status, both kind of materially, right? If you have more stuff, then you can hire people to protect you or to go out and get your enemy. But also symbolically, you know, that I'm walking around with this beautiful, beautiful, codon or whatever, and that signals to people that I can afford something that they can't, and therefore I'm higher in status than they are. So I think that's one aspect of the innate kind of striving. I think the other aspect is that as a species hundreds of thousands of years ago, you know, we became successful as a species not because we're that big, not because we're that fast, not because our senses are so keen, but because we're excellent tool users, okay, you know, fire, spears, later on, hose so that we could garden and, and farm, it's our use of tools, which uh, as a species we've relied on over and over again when times get tough, right? And I think that's clearly true of, of our ancestors as well. I mean, the first semi-monkey human who figured out that they could actually pick up this rock and throw it at an enemy or pick up this, this long piece of wood and, and use it to get something to eat was using a tool And in order to satisfy some survival needs. And so I think it's really built into us as a species to look to tools which are always material, as something that helps to satisfy us. And so I think that's part of what draws us towards these new possessions or whatever, um, you know, because there's something really deep in us as a a species which orients us towards those material things because they helped us survive for a long, long time and they still help us survive today.
0: So way back, it was obviously for survival. Today, it's just Maybe we just always feel safer when we have more tools and materials around us. And that's what keeps driving this.
1: I think that's a big part of it. You know, I mean, it's it's similar. You know, there, a long, long time ago, it was really adaptive to like high-fat foods because when the next drought came, you know, and there wasn't enough food, at least you had some weight on you. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a potato chip on every corner. And so it's not, you know, we still have this desire for the high-fat food, but we live in a society which gives us way too much high-fat food to potentially ingest. So it's still our our primitive instincts kind of interact in a really damaging way with um, our current society, which I guess brings us to the second part of the story here too, right? Which is that right now we live in a social political economic system, which does everything it can in order to encourage people to consume, which uh, glorifies economic growth, which glorifies business profit, which tries to push out all those other important values that we might focus on in the service of, of money. And that, that's how our economic system is organized, you know, as opposed to, say, in the Middle Middle Ages, where clearly there were materialistic people, but when you take a look at the, at the you know, seven deadly sins, at least four of them have something to do with trying to have too much stuff, right? And so in that sort of an environment, materialism was frowned upon, in the current political, social, and economic environment, materialism is raised to the greatest good, it's said to to be a great thing, and then people get socialized into this belief that money is important, that possessions are important, that status is important, and it kind of joins together with our innate tendencies to create the disaster that we're in right now.
0: So what about our world has changed to allow for mindless materialism since it wasn't always this way?
1: Well, I think, you know, the first is obviously media, you know, and the ability of media to deliver consumer messages, you know, so, so in uh, this country, um, the United States, the vast majority of media is for profit owned by for profit companies who make their money based on advertising. And so, so we have the system which is designed in order to deliver, Entertainment, but the entertainment is just the sidelight in order to deliver the advertising or to measure people in terms of what they like and dislike, so you can deliver advertising to them later on, right? So I think that's the first thing we we have, and and you can really see this happening in the 50s with the onset of television, um, and then again in the 80s with a lot of deregulation of television, et cetera, and then of course later on with the internet. So that's one aspect. I think another thing we have is you know. After the after World War Two ended, you know, here we had this this massive. Ability in the U.S. to produce a lot of stuff because they'd been producing tanks and bombs and all the rest. And um, you also had a new clear enemy in communism with a different idea about about how to organize things socially, politically and economically. And so the 50s is when you really see most scholars say the onset of consumer society, the the real belief that, you know, citizens aren't citizens, they're consumers Mm -hmm. um, and that the way. To uh, have the best possible society both in terms of stability of keeping people stable um, and not revolting but also generating a lot of income that could then be used as tax revenue that then could be spent by the government in order to build the biggest military machine the world has ever seen is through consumerism. Right. You know, and is through a focus on economic growth and is through a focus on business profit. And so you really have the wholesale adoption by both Democrats and Republicans alike with the mantra of economic growth, with deregulation, um, with dropping tax rates on the rich, et cetera, et cetera. And with celebrating consumption. This isn't just a Donald Trump issue. You know, Donald Trump is, let's hope, the top of it. You know, it doesn't get any higher than this. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it's. you can see it in Bill Clinton. You can see it in Obama. You can see it in, in most of the presidents since the 50s in terms of the, the kinds of moves that they've made towards a more extreme form of capitalism than we had before.
0: Well, I feel like sometimes when we understand how we're wired, we can then see past that to consciously work against it. So for example, like when I understand that my my drive to eat fatty and sweet foods or junk food stems from my innate desire to just have more energy, but there's so much junk food available that helps me to like stop myself from doing that. So yeah. in terms of materialism, what are the latest findings to do with what it takes for us to really improve our life quality without being sucked into materialism that we should keep mm-hmm. in
1: mind? Well, there's a lot of different things, but I'll I'll say my strategy boils down to three things. So the first is that we know from the research that the more social models of materialism you're exposed to, the more you're gonna care about it. And even if you're not really a materialistic person, you kind of alluded to this before, you know, you sort of see the thing and then you're like, ooh, that's kind of cool, you know? And and so, and and that's normal, you know? And so the first thing is to limit your exposure as much as possible to those materialistic messages, to use things like ad block, to spend less time um, on commercial television, to cancel your subscriptions, to magazines that make you feel bad about your body and say that you should buy X and Y and Z to feel good about your body Get that junk out of your life as much as possible so that you're not going to kind of continually reminded of all this stuff that you don't really need anyway and that's probably going to put you into debt if you buy it. Limit your exposure is the first step. The second step goes also to the safety security issue is that, you know, during those times when you're feeling say unsafe or insecure or threatened or incompetent or whatever it is, rather than hopping onto the Internet and buying something or going shopping or whatever to stop – And to use the kind of mindfulness that you just noted um, that we can use with regard to food and to use that with regard to consumerism and to say, well, wait a second, I am feeling bad right now. Last time when I bought a sweater to make myself feel better, did it really work in the long term to solve the underlying problem? Did it have other negative outcomes or are there better things I could do right now like go for a walk or take a nice warm bath or call up a friend or make myself some nice healthy food to eat or whatever, right? To find a different solution. So those are the first two. The third one has to do with the value pie that I talked about before. So you remember that I said that you, know, the, that you can think of your value system as being like a big pie with a lot of different slices in it. Um, one of the things that to me has been most interesting that we've discovered over the last 10 or so years is that there's an interesting kind of dynamic uh, tension in the value system such that some Some values are compatible with each other and others are in conflict with each other. So we know, for example, that money image and status are relatively compatible values, but they stand in relative conflict with a set of values that we call intrinsic values. So intrinsic values, we call them intrinsic because they're intrinsically satisfying to pursue because they meet basic intrinsic psychological needs we all have. So the three main intrinsic values we focus on are for personal growth. So kind of doing things you're fun that you find fun and interesting affiliation, which is having close relationships with others and community feeling, which is trying to help the broader world be a better place. Physical health, by the way, is also an intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. Now, what we know is that the more that people focus on materialistic values, the less they focus on intrinsic values. But the reverse is also true. The more that people focus on intrinsic values, the less they focus on materialistic values. And there's all kinds of different evidence to that supports this idea, both experimental evidence and studies in lots of different nations, et cetera. But what, the, what this means practically is that the way to avoid getting sucked into materialism is to ask yourself, okay, what do I really care about? If it really is those intrinsic values, which it probably is for most people, Am I actually living my life in a way which is consistent with my intrinsic values? So is the work I do consistent with intrinsic values? Is how I spend a Saturday afternoon consistent with my intrinsic values? Are my investments aligned with my intrinsic values? Are the kind of people I hang out with ones who support my intrinsic values or who support materialistic values, etc.? And so the solution then becomes to reorient one's life so that one's intrinsic values are actually guiding it rather than those materialistic values. Now, what we know is that the more that people focus on intrinsic values, the happier they are, the more pro-socially the, they behave and the more ecologically sustainable they are. And so um, those intrinsic values not only help to suppress the materialistic values, they also have this kind of triple win of being happier, a nicer person and a more sustainable person.
0: Definitely. So we'll have to keep in touch with our intrinsic values, and that will be better for our personal well-being and also for sustainability.
1: That's right. And for civil society.
0: Mm. So I want to touch on your recent book. It's called Capitalism. Can you share your motivation to write this and what the biggest message you want to get out there is with the book?
1: Sure. Well, the first thing I would tell listeners is that it's a cartoon book. So it's a collaboration that I did with a well-known cartoonist named Larry Gonick, um, who's best known for a five-volume series, uh, the Cartoon History of the Universe. And um, I had been trying to write this book for a long time. I'd actually started it back in 2007, and I failed at it. And then I started it again in 10, and I failed at it. And then finally, I was like, maybe it should be a cartoon book. And so I wrote Larry, and he agreed to work with me on it, It came out in January. And I would say I have two primary things going on in the book. you know the f- the first thing that's happening in the book is to explain to people what capitalism is, what it's become, And what the underlying values of it are and and that goes back to that dynamic tension we just talked about that you know capitalism is about making money it's about prioritizing materialistic values and so part of why the world's so messed up is because the more that people and societies care about money the less they're going to care about those intrinsic values and that's why we have an economic system which leads to such inequality which leads to such ecological degradation and which is so you know, soul sapping. So I think that's the first, that's part one. Um, part two of the book is about solutions. And so um, what that is, is to show a variety of different ways that people right now are working towards, um, you know, lifestyles and business organizations and political actions that are organized around intrinsic values rather than around materialistic values. And it's all based, it's not some pie in the sky stuff. It's things people are actually doing, some of which have been tested and show that they work pretty well. So that's sort of the second major purpose of the book. But underlying it all is the goal to make it accessible and hopefully a little fun. Um, And that's part of why we did it in the cartoon format.
0: We'll definitely have to check your book out. I'll link to this in the show notes so our listeners can check it out. I'd love to hear just knowing everything you know about how humans are wired, what people are driven by, what do you think we need most today to collectively redefine what it means to live well so that we can actually accelerate towards better life quality, and a sustainable planet?
1: Well, for me, I think we really have to begin by questioning our political, economic, social system and the extent to which each of us contributes to it and has taken on its beliefs you know, we're not going to do anything quickly about the way we're hardwired. But we do have this economic system of capitalism, which is designed to sort of take advantage of of this way we have that turns out not to be very good for our well-being or for society or the earth. And so I think you know, as somebody who's been writing about capitalism and talking about it for a long time, I see an opening now that didn't used to be here you know I mean I think before the 2008 financial crisis it was very difficult to even say the word capitalism without people immediately jumping on me, I have to say. Now, since then, you can talk about capitalism and you can even start to point out some of its difficulties and some of its pains that it brings along. And I think we need to really look long and hard at the system that drives our economy and our politics and start to develop better and new things. And I think personally to ask ourselves, is this really the life I want for myself or for my children or for the people love? Um, And what can I do tomorrow that shows my intrinsic values rather than just trying to make money again?
0: So on an individual level, we just have to start with choosing to focus on our intrinsic values. And maybe that will create a ripple effect into society.
1: (laughs) Well, my sense is, yes, I mean, that that's really the way that I've come to look at it, you know, is that and, and but there's lots of ways to do that. Again, you can do that in, you know, the things you buy and we ought to. That's not enough, but it's something we can do it in the things we the way we invest, but we can do it in our workplaces, you know, and and work to make changes in terms of how our work organizations are, are set up. We can do it in our local communities with regard to, you know, the the rules in our school boards or the rules in our town about bike lanes. Um, and then we can do it at, at bigger and bigger federal levels. You know, I think too often people get sucked into the idea that anything has to, you know, the government should do it, you know. And this is in some ways was where my wife says I'm kind of a Republican, you know, is that you, I, do, I do think, you know, if we rely too much on the government government, that's the, especially the federal government. First off, we're not going to see anything change for a while. And, and second off, it's not going to happen. You know, what we need to do is to start to make changes in our lives, in our workplaces, in our local politics, and watch those start to ripple up. That's, that's my sense of the best way forward.
0: Mm. Well, we look forward to continually learning more from you and checking your book out. Where can we go to follow you online and on social media and find hypercapitalism?
1: Uh, well, I don't really do much social media. I do have a website, so if people, uh, you know, do an internet search on my name, Tim Casser with a K, uh, they'll find my website and this and that about me. I do have a, a few uh, videos on YouTube. There's one kind of fun animated one that's about five minutes long that I narrate, so you could check that out. But I don't do much other social media. It's <laughs> uh, hypercapitalism was published by the new press in 2018 and so if you visit the new press's website um, or you just do an internet search on hypercapitalism in my name you'll be able to find it i'm sure um, or ask your local library if they'll get a copy and then other people can look at it too
0: So I have to admit that for these past few weeks in Chicago, which is where I've been for the past month or so, uh, they have been a struggle because it's been quite cold and it's been really cold actually and quite gloomy and I'm just not that great with cold weather. It makes me slower, less motivated, so it's been hard for me to keep up in terms of interviewing people, constantly editing the audio, doing narrations, back-end stuff, and publishing multiple episodes per week. And of course, I am extremely grateful for the few sponsors we've had to support us in producing the podcast to help make this possible. But since the show is still pretty new, we're at just over six months now. uh, We still have ways to go until sponsorship can fully support the cost of producing this show, which is honestly one of the practical reasons why it gets difficult as well. But, you know, the one thing that really keeps me going is just thinking about you knowing that you're here right now. I mean, I'm, I'm so honored by that. I set out to create Green Dreamer Podcast because I know you have a unique gift to share with this world, and also we need you to support this sustainability movement. But I know life can be tough, this world can be harsh, and the social and environmental issues we face also can be really overwhelming and discouraging. So uh. I don't really know where I'm going with this, actually. I don't have all the answers, but I guess I just want to tell you that it gets tough for me as well. I feel you, but I'm not going to let that make me lose sight of why this podcast is here, and I'm going to do my best to keep supporting you in all that you do, because like I said, we need you, and I am so grateful for you. Anyway, before I get emotional about this, here is our final five for this episode. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account, which I know you don't follow, or publication you follow?
1: To be honest, all I read is my local newspaper and uh, an occasional New Yorker, so I don't know that I'm the best person. (laughs) That's cool.
0: Um, What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: The thing I tell myself to be positive is that this is the one life I have as me, and don't waste it. Do the best I can, given what my skills are and what my situation is.
0: Mm. What's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly?
1: For my physical health, every day I'm outside doing something. We live on 10 acres, so there's always something to do. Uh, For my mental health, I play the piano and sing every day.
0: Uh, What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably?
1: I would say the biggest thing is that I've been in the vegetable garden much more intensively the last three months than ever before. We have two big vegetable gardens as well as fruit trees and such. And I've spent a lot of time out there. And then we eat the food and can it and freeze it and all that.
0: Mm. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now?
1: The thing that makes me most hopeful is that is something I said already that Intrinsic values not only suppress materialistic values, but they're associated with being happier, being nicer, and living more sustainably. And so it's actually a fairly simple solution if we can figure out how to do it in our lives and in our organizations. Mm
0: -hmm. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Go do whatever it is you can do this next few months. Do the one or two things that you can do. Get those solidified in your life. Don't try to do everything in the next six months. Pick the one or two things you can do. Get them solidified in your life. Once they're solidified, then pick the next one or two things you can do. Solidify those and you'll be amazed how far you can get in five or ten years.
0: What are your one or two top priorities for the next few months? Just take on a few things at a time and you'll be surprised at how far you'll get in 5 to 10 years. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview as well as links and resources at greendreamer.com 88 for episode 88. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page and you can find me on Instagram at kamea Shane. And finally, just remember...